Welcome to the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust podcast on writing great grants. This year, we're proud to mark 45 years serving the nonprofit community of the Pacific Northwest. As a private nonprofit foundation, we have invested more than $1 billion through capacity building grants, enrichment programs, and convenings for nonprofits with a desire to help organizations flourish and thrive in order to serve the common good of our communities. On this show, we provide real world insights and tactical information from experts in the field to help grow the capacity of nonprofits, strengthen organizations for the long term, and support leaders in their fundraising and grant applications efforts. On today's episode, we sit down with Michael Kaiser to talk about the importance of organizational management, as well as the importance of promoting your organization in a thoughtful way. Enjoy today's show. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the podcast. We're thrilled to have you have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Now, as we mentioned, you have worked with some of the most prestigious names in the arts world during your career, the Royal Opera House, the Kennedy Center, the American Ballet Theater, on and on. Now, through your work with the DeVos Institute, you're spending a lot of time working with smaller organizations from all over the country, some that are relatively young in their career and kind of trying to take that next step, some that have maybe focused on serving a specific niche uh, or community, but have also been operating in that niche and community for a number of years. What do you observe is similar and what's different about how large established groups approach their work compared with the smaller groups? There's actually an awful lot of similarity between large and small organizations in terms of what makes them healthy. Great art, strong marketing, good boards, a welcoming embrace of their family of donors and of their um, visitors or ticket buyers. These are similar whether you're very large or very small. Smaller organizations tend to be more agile. They can change a little bit more quickly, but they don't tend to have access to the same number of donors and that large base of supporters that the larger organizations do, which means they have to work harder to find new sources of revenue. And do you find that that, that a, a certain personality type lends itself to more success in terms of leadership? in a smaller organization or a larger organization, or is it more just the passion for the mission? I think in all cases in the arts, you need to have a passion for the mission. I think in larger organizations, if you're the leader, you tend to have less of a hands-on role, a day-to-day role of managing this aspect or that aspect. You have to be a really good delegator. You have to trust the people who report to you. In a small organization, you tend to have more span of control. That is, you're worrying about every aspect. In many cases, you only have one or two or three other people working with you, which means you really have to roll up your sleeves and dig in. I think some people are better suited to the one kind of working, and some people are better suited to the other kind of working. Having done both myself, I can say there's great rewards in both. I want to go back to uh, your, your answer actually to my first question, uh, because the goal of this podcast is to provide helpful resources and strategies so that nonprofits can strengthen their current work and then grow in sustainable ways to continue serving the common good over time. And one of the areas that can sometimes be cut when times get tough and that you specifically touched on that that's critical to the success of these organizations is marketing. Why do you find that marketing and communications can be so important to nonprofits, particularly those that are in the arts field? 
I think that not-for-profit organizations almost all struggle with their revenue side more than they do on their expense side. They tend to be very efficient of the money they spend, but they're always looking for more revenue so they can better pursue their missions. And marketing has such a direct impact on all forms of revenue. We know the impact on earned revenue, selling tickets, getting people to subscribe. That's the traditional arts marketing, and clearly it's critical. But I'm also obsessed by the role of marketing and getting fundraising working well. I find that too many organizations don't think about how important it is to communicate to donors and prospective donors about the exciting things that are about to happen with the organization and how if they participate, they can enjoy these exciting moments. And that's a marketing function. And I think it's oftentimes not thought about that way for cultural institutions. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that when, you know, times start to get a little bit more challenging and, you know, obviously budgets need to be reevaluated, but that organizations, one of the first areas that they look at is that marketing outreach budget? Organizations are always looking at where can we cut if things are tough. And it's hard to cut art because you want to do the same number of performances or exhibitions as you normally do. And a lot of organizations don't want to cut staff. So that's a big portion of your expense you can't cut. And you typically can't change your rent if you pay rent on a building. So the one big area that's left is marketing. And so, so often organizations cut marketing just at the very moment they need to be thinking about marketing in a more expansive way. Because if they did more marketing, if they got more people excited about their organization, then they would have an easier time getting the revenue they need to get out of the problem. And so it's it's really funny to me that organizations cut their marketing at the exact moment they need. So if, if you were hypothetically sitting in that executive director chair for a nonprofit in the arts organization, in the arts field, and you know, we're facing a recession or facing an economic downturn or something like that, and the board is saying we have to cut a certain amount of money. What what strategy or what approach, um, you know, generally speaking, or if there's, you know, a specific example, maybe of an organization that, you know, has done this successfully that you point to and say, this is this is how you do it. How would you make the case for rather than cutting more, we need to invest more in this specific area? For me, when an organization is having financial challenge, either because it's ill as an organization or because of the economy, many difficult choices have to be made. And I'm always working to make sure that I'm pursuing my mission, so I'm doing great art, and I'm building my revenue base, which means I'm doing great marketing. To me, those are the two things that are most important to invest in in a downturn. I save money in everything else. Now, I had the pleasure of actually hearing you speak about the importance and value of marketing um, at a presentation uh, several months ago. And you you hit on, I think, a, a very important topic that sometimes gets lost, and that's the difference between institutional marketing and programmatic marketing, and how programmatic marketing can kind of feel like the, 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 the immediate ROI, the immediate revenue driver, and sometimes groups can maybe lose sight of the importance of institutional marketing in terms of the, the, the long term. Can you speak about those two and, and the role they play in the overall marketing cycle for nonprofits? Many organizations think marketing is just important because it helps build earned income. And traditionally, marketing was about what we call programmatic marketing, 
the more can we do to get people to buy a ticket, come to an exhibition, enroll in a class, generating earned income. But what I have found is that marketing has just as big an impact on raising money. And to get prospects and donors really excited, institutional marketing is what is called for. What institutional marketing is, is the marketing we do to get people saying, this is such a cool organization. They're doing such interesting work. It would be so much fun to engage with them. I want to work with this organization. I want to be part of it. The techniques for institutional marketing are different than the techniques for programmatic marketing. In programmatic marketing, we're doing email blasts and doing posters and advertising and direct mail pieces. But institutional marketing comes from those announcements you make of really exciting news or the productions you do that are so riveting that people go, wow, how did they ever come up with that? Or doing joint ventures with other big, important organizations or working with celebrities, all the kinds of things that get people to be surprised and excited. They're different than selling ticket to a performance next week. They're about getting people to say, generally, I want to be part of um, as, as we mentioned, you've worked with a number of nonprofits in a wide variety of size and scale and geography. Um, and, you know, we've, we spent a little bit of time here focusing on kind of the marketing side, but in taking a step back, generally speaking, what are one or two of the traits or best practices that you find position an organization in the nonprofit sector for success? I would say the first is to really plan your programming, your art really far in advance and make it as exciting and riveting and ambitious as you possibly can afford. And I talk about planning it in advance because I find that if organizations take two or three or four years to plan a really big project, they have a much easier time making it big, exciting, and finding the revenue to pay for it. And if you only plan your big projects six or eight months in advance, then you probably can only go back to the same donors who've always supported you. And you're probably not going to do a project that's out of scale or larger or more exciting than projects you've done in the past. So I think planning in advance, planning big, thinking about those big, exciting projects that are going to surprise your community. That to me is an absolute essential for building a healthy cultural institution. So just to, to be clear, are you, are you talking about, kind of planning the the bigger the the big marquee projects and still leaving room for you know if a and a you know surprise opportunity or something particularly topical comes up then you can kind of fill in with those absolutely i'm not saying everything should be planned three or four or five years in advance that would be boring probably <laughs> we need to be responsive to what's happening in the world around us we need to be able to jump on an opportunity to work with a great artist that just emerges <laughs> But those bigger projects do take time and they do take resources. And I believe if you give yourself more time, you're more likely to be able to afford a big project and actually to conceive of a big project in a way that will surprise your community and help you build your family of donors. We've also talked about the importance of marketing and investing in marketing. Um, but again, taking a step back, big picture, are there, you know, are there one or two traits you see that organizations um, demonstrate that maybe get in the way of success? Similar to how we've talked about, you know, the organizations that maybe pull back on their funding at a time for marketing when they they should be investing more. Are there are there one or two other common 
behaviors or traits that you see that kind of get in the way of success for, for nonprofits? I think organizations, in terms of marketing, I think organizations that really focus only on the programmatic marketing, who think of marketing as only a way to build earned income, really do get in their own way. A lot of organizations have some great news to share, have some really important moments, but I'm afraid that a lot of organizations don't take the time and energy to think about how are we going to make this really visible to our constituency. And then there's one other thing about the way we communicate that I think is essential. This is a very challenging world in which to run an arts organization. This is not easy. And we face many challenges, particularly today. And yet so many organizations forget that the reason why people come to us, why people want to engage with a cultural institution is because they want respite or inspiration or entertainment or excitement. And when we, overly share the problems we're facing, when we look like we're whining about money to people over and over and over again, it means that people aren't getting that respite they wanted. They're not getting that inspiration. People don't want to hear about our problems. They have problems of their own. And so we have to have a real, a real discipline about not overly sharing the constraints we're operating under, not talking too much about the problems we're facing, and this is particularly true, I think, right now in the time of COVID, because the arts, I believe, are vital to our society, but I don't believe we win the COVID fundraising battle. I think there are other places that people want to give their COVID-related money, food banks, healthcare, people who've lost their jobs. And I think the arts have to make their gains with donors on the basis of the excitement we do, we're doing now and what we're promising for the future. So I think we have to not whine, not complain, not overly share about our problems, but rather inspire, educate, and entertain. It's a very difficult balance, it feels like, that arts organizations are walking because, you know, as you've alluded to, part of what makes the arts organizations so special is that they create the sense of community. They create the sense of family with their donors and their patrons. And so in some ways you want to tell them, here's what we're, here's where we're struggling. Here's where we need your help. Here's where we want to engage you. But like you said, you also don't want to be the ones that are bringing the, bringing the room down, so to speak. You want to be bringing the room up. It, it's a great point. And I do believe in sharing with our family of donors and our subscribers and ticket buyers and our visitors and our students, our problems, but not in a way that seems like we're whining, but rather to say, and here's what we're proactively doing about it. I think something that all arts organizations could do now very profitably is to have Zoom-based town hall meetings with their various stakeholders to talk through what are they facing and how they're dealing with it and what very exciting works coming down the pike. So it's not about complaining, it's about talking through the issues, showing that you have a plan, inviting your stakeholders to give their suggestions, make them feel part of the solution, but don't whine. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we've, we've been able to dive into the COVID-19 situation a little bit because obviously that's a, a very serious challenge that is, has hit nonprofits very hard through the first half of 2020. And we'll continue, uh, you know, by, by all forecasts well into 2021. 
Um, you know, you, I've, I've heard already some, some kind of top takeaways that I, I hear you wanting uh, nonprofits to take away from this situation. Um, but what do you hope that they will learn and apply moving forward? Once we get out of COVID-19, which hopefully will happen someday, um, but, you know, as we look at 2022, 2023, in terms of planning, in terms of strategy, what do you hope the, the arts community in general takes away from this whole situation? It's a great question. There's several things I hope they learn. One is the importance of a cash reserve fund. I think a lot of organizations don't have a lot of cash on hand. And in fact, our statistics show that the average cultural institution in America has less than two months of cash on hand, just too little. Something hits like COVID and you really can get clobbered. And I believe, frankly, this is an important thing for funders to learn as well because I don't think cash reserves were the favorite thing that funders wanted to fund either. But I do think it's something that we need to be thinking about. A second thing I hope um, organizations learn is the importance of stewarding their donor relationships, by which I mean really keeping your donors close to you, talking with them, engaging with them. Don't just ask for money. Share what's going on with your organization and make sure that you're caring about what's happening in their lives as well. One of the best things to be done in this period of COVID, I think, is just to call up your donors and ask them how they are. Check on their health, check on their families. Make sure they feel part of your organizational family. Don't just call people when you want money because these donors are the ones who are keeping a lot of organizations alive. And for these next six or nine months, when we've run out of our PPP money and when we've gotten those special grants that we're gonna get, Who's going to keep us solvent will be those donors who care about us. And that has to be a two-way street. We have to care about them. One of the things that we've seen from arts organizations, nonprofits in general, has been this, this pivot around the during the during the pandemic and, and how they've they've pivoted the services they provide. And the arts organizations have been you know, really at the forefront of that. We've seen a lot of, you know, online performances and, you know, virtuals and, you know, public concerts, but, you know, with social distancing. Do you think that we're entering a, a period where that will continue once um, once we're able to, to gather in, in large groups and have people, you know, come to shows and come to art galleries and things like that? Or do you feel like this is more kind of a temporary hold and once we, you know, are, are able to get back to business as usual, the digital representation of art will, will start to fade back into the background. We were already seeing an increase in digital arts um, and the distribution of arts online and the creation of arts online before the pandemic. I wrote a book about this six years ago. And this move to online has a very big impact on our ability to sell our tickets or the live shows, but we have seen a movement. There's, it's why YouTube is one of the most watched um, channels. The, the, the most watched website in the world, I believe, is YouTube. People were already watching performances online before the pandemic. That pandemic has sped it up. And the pandemic, as you say rightly, has shifted the views of cultural institutions um, to producing work for online. And I do believe that will continue, but I still believe in the power of the in-person performance. And I think that many people will be very, very excited to go back into a theater once they feel safe to do so. 
And so I'm also recommending to organizations to be very careful that while they pivot now to online, that they keep some resources set aside for when we can have large audiences again, so that they can be competitive with really exciting, important art at a time that every cultural institution and every TV network and every movie studio will be producing work all of a sudden, and we have to be exciting and be able to compete. One of the things that's been most difficult, I think, about this whole pandemic situation has been that we've seen a number of kind of scrappy startup, smaller arts organizations that, that serve a very niche audience um, or maybe represent a niche group of, of artists um, that have been working for a year, three years, five years, and finally starting to really gain a foothold have really been just decimated by the situation. Um, there's kind of an ongoing question in the arts community and, and also in the nonprofit community in general around, you know, groups merging um, versus, you know, just closing up shop. Are you more uh, an, an advocate for, you know, two small groups at this point kind of merging and joining forces to, to weather the storm? Um, or do you think that this is just kind of, you know, part of the process that eventually we're going to see some groups uh, just uh, unfortunately, you know, close their doors and, and not be able to reopen? And that's, um, that's just the, the nature of the beast. The truth of the matter is, is that the smallest organizations typically don't go under. They just hibernate for a while. They're so resilient and they're so small and their overheads are so small that they don't end up owing lots of money. They just can't produce for a while, but then they come back. If you look at what happened in 2008-9 recession, a lot of the smallest institutions actually came out of it at the end okay. The largest institutions typically have the big donor bases that don't let them necessarily go away. It's the mid-sized organization which has overhead that I think suffers the most damage from these situations. But should organizations merge? Only if their missions really are coincident. It's not easy to merge two arts organizations. I've done it a few times. It's not easy to get the staffs and the boards and the artistic leadership all happy with moving in the same direction. So I don't think it's a panacea to merge. What I do think is that organizations need to see, are there some joint services they could merge with another organization? Can they share a finance function or a marketing function? Are there ways for them to work together with other institutions without necessarily having to go through the formal merger process? Well then, uh, Michael, my last question for you, we, we've talked about a lot of really challenging topics and kind of the, the challenges facing our communities right now. Having worked with so many nonprofits and particularly been in the trenches working with a number of groups during this last, you know, five or six months of the pandemic, what has you optimistic? What are you feeling positive about and looking, you know, toward the toward the future uh, with a with, with a sense of optimism? People always want to be entertained. They always want to be inspired. There's been a demand for arts since the cavemen time. There's going to be art. There's going to be creativity. And so I'm optimistic that we will emerge from this with the best minds and the most creative people developing art that's going to inspire and educate and excite people. And it may be with a slightly different corporate structure. It might be with a slightly different demand curve, but there's going to be the need and the demand for wonderful, great art of all kinds, diverse art, important music and dance and theater 
And so I believe we can look forward to a time of remarkable artistic energy when we're allowed to get back together in larger groups. And I, for one, can't wait to participate. Michael, you have been so generous with your time with us today, and you've been so generous with your support of, of the Murdoch Trust and, and the arts in general. Thank you so much for, for joining us on, on our podcast today. We really appreciate this conversation. Thank you very, very much. And that wraps up this episode of the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust Podcast. For more information on nonprofit development and effective grant writing, as well as resources on leadership, board management, team building, and a variety of other topics in the nonprofit space, visit us online at murdochtrust.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Murdoch Trust, on Facebook at Murdoch Charitable Trust, and on LinkedIn. Music for this episode was provided by Lobo Loco via the Free Music Archive. This episode of the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust podcast was recorded by the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.